for those of you who are, who are newer, we have been going through the book of Philippians together. And Philippians, kind of the overarching theme we've been looking is taken from a phrase uh, that comes in the first chapter of the book, where Paul talks about praying for the progress and the joy of believers. So we've kind of taken that as a theme for the book, the progress and, and joy that we have. And Paul has recently, in chapter three, been addressing something that is a preventative or a problem that can keep us from progressing or having joy in the faith. Uh, and he, he addresses a form of works righteousness. And we had a, a great Heidelberg Catechism questions that refute the ideas uh, of, that Paul was combating in Philippi. The, the idea is, that was infecting Philippi and has been a problem for the church ever since was the idea that we can get a right relationship with God through our works, through our merits, through what we do ourselves. And uh, the particular brand that seemed to be infecting Philippi was kind of the idea that in order to be right with God, you had to follow the statutes of the Old Testament law. And, and Paul brilliantly kind of presents himself as a case study. He says, hey, look, if this were the way to get right with God, I would have it. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know my tribe, my lineage. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Y'all are getting circumcised late in the game. I was circumcised on the eighth day when all good Jewish boys were circumcised. And he gives kind of his resume in the flesh, his resume of works, and says, hey, if this is what saved you, I'd be way better off than y'all. But it's not, so I treat it like rubbish. I, te- I treat it re- like refuse. And he says, in order that I may gain Christ, we, we see a glimpse into Paul's heart, his motives. His goal is to know Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from works of the law, but one that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so he, he says all this, that he might know Christ, the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And we talked about this is not Paul being unconfident of the resurrection, but uncertain of his means of attaining it. He doesn't know whether he's going to die in prison or be released. He doesn't know if he's going to stay until Christ returns. So he says, with all I have, I'm pursuing this objective of knowing Christ. We talked about the bizarre idea, especially for us who live in a culture that is geared around our comfort, our pleasure, that Paul is actually willing to undergo suffering and view it as a joy that he might know Christ more fully. Now, we have an interesting passage here today. One of the things I I, I want to talk about this is um, the the idea that we're not completely where we are, and we're, we're not completely where we should be, rather. And uh, this is going to tie back to something we've mentioned before, but it bears repeating, uh, the, little, the, the three aspects of salvation. And we, we've talked about it throughout this study because Philippians really kind of lives in, in the middle of those stages. And if you're thinking of the other stages, the other aspects of salvation, uh, it, it can lead you astray a little bit. We said the three aspects of salvation are justification. That is the point... In, when we receive Christ's work 
and the benefit of it for us. The penalty of sin is removed. We are viewed as perfectly righteous in God's eyes. Then, then there's the aspect uh, in, of sanctification, which is the process we are going through now in our lives, which is the, the process of growing into what we already are. The, the, the process of growing in faith, the process by which the presence of sin is reduced now that the penalty and power of sin has, or the, the penalty of sin has been removed. It's the process of becoming more and more like Christ, the process of being perfected. Then we have the final stage, which we say is glorification, which is when we see Christ and are made fully and finally like him. When the presence of sin and the power of sin is completely removed from us. Uh, so we have these a- aspects of salvation that are occurring, and Philippians really kind of lives in the middle. And, and one of the things I want you to know and to, re- to remind you of is that what you believe about your origin and what you believe about your destiny determine how you live today. What you believe about your origin and what you believe about your destiny determine how you live today. So if if I believe that I have been fully saved by Christ and his work on the cross, then that's going to change how I live. If I also believe that a day is coming when Christ will return and reclaim all things, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's going to determine how I live today. If I believe that he's going to perfect me, that when I see him, I will be made like him, that's going to change the way I live. So our origin and our destiny determine our trajectory. So it's very important. One of the things you'll notice throughout Philippians, if you read the whole book, just about any time Paul mentions the end times, Christ coming back, or things like that, it's almost always paired with an exhortation in the present for the way in which they should be living. Your destiny determines how you live today. So with all that in in mind, uh, one of the things I want to give an illustration, then we're going to look at the text. I want to talk to you about people who are excellent in a field. And and one of the things I've, I've noticed this is if somebody is excellent in their field, there's generally a sense of dissatisfaction in them. Have you ever noticed this? I was not an organized and still am not an organized person, but I married a very organized person. And I thought organization was you you just simply created a space for everything and then you put the things in those space and then you're just organized. (laughs) What I discovered is that organization is a process by which you are continually organizing everything and continually changing and continually improving those things. Um, since it's not football season, I'll try and switch my sports analogies um, to the benefit of you who are not football fans. But Roger Federer, uh, uh, according to five minutes of research on Google, is the greatest tennis player in the world. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that Roger Federer, as the greatest tennis player in the world, has a coach. Do you know what that means? That means that there is somebody telling the greatest tennis player in the world how to play tennis. That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? But one of the things and one of the reasons why Roger Federer is so great is because he has a dissatisfaction 
with how good he is at tennis. He has a dissatisfaction with how far he has progressed in his game, and he wants to continually improve that, so he hires and pays money to have somebody else tell him, the best person in the world at tennis, how to play tennis better. Now, this is a little bit odd. You think if anybody could be satisfied with how well they play tennis, it'd be the greatest one in the world, wouldn't it? But no, he has a dissatisfaction with his progress. He is striving for something greater than what he's already attained. And the passage we're going to be talking about is pursuing something greater than what we've already attained. If you would, read with me. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through verse 16. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Philippians. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would not come to study your word to increase our strength, our abilities, but that we would come to know you, that we would come to grow in faith, hope, and love towards you, that we might be better citizens of your heavenly kingdom, that we might be better servants, that we might be better sons and daughters, that we might be lights in a dark world for your glory, for your praise, for your honor, that we might live faithful and fruitful lives until Christ returns to claim what is his. Amen. Uh, One of the things that's a theme in this passage is is the idea of uh, maturity or perfection. And and one of the things uh, that's not always kind of revealed in in the English is Paul's doing a little bit of wordplay in this. Uh, When he says, not that I've already obtained this or already made perfect, in verse 12, he he uses a form of that word that that we translate perfect. Some translations might translate mature. He uses a form of that later on in verse 15. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Well, it's the same root that's in both of these words. So in the one sense, he says, not that I've already been made perfect, not that I've already become what I'm supposed to be. And then later on, he says, those of you who are perfect or those of you who are mature should think this way. Uh, And and it's a little wordplay, and we don't get it in English because we aren't using kind of the Greek words. Uh, But I'm going to do something, and it's going to be a little bit nerdy, and I I hope you all stick with me through it. But I want to do a little bit of a word study on this word. 
And like I said, this is, this, this is a little bit deep. It's going to be a little harder to follow, but I figure the people who could handle it are the type of people who show up on Sunday night during spring break. Um, so, so I have confidence that, that you'll be able to handle this, but I want you to listen. The word that's, that's kind of used here is a firm uh, called uh, teleos. And uh, it comes from another Greek word called telos. And telos means end or goal. So both the words, the becoming perfect and being uh, mature or perfect in the, in the other passage, have this root word telos, which means end or goal. And it can, when it becomes an adjective, it means he who has reached his end or purpose. Uh, as, a na- as a noun, it can indicate physical and intellectual development. Uh, so as an adjective, similarly, it can be used in a biological sense. Teleos can refer to a mature adult who has uh, reached the full limits of stature, strength, and mental power. As I said, bear with me, this is going to be a, a, a little bit long, but it's important to get the idea that this word conveys. Uh, in, in contrast, it's distinguished from uh, pious or boy and padion child and from uh, the word for infant. Besides describing those fully grown out of age, the adjective can depict those who have reached the limit or apex of their professional ability. So like Roger Federer. Uh, so somebody, who, uh, somebody who's a rhetorician who can spin a fight in discourse. Uh, the image of maturity or fully completed physical and mental growth in contrast to immaturity underlies kind of the ethical and moral use of the word. So if, if you want to be mature in your profession, you, you pursue that. If you, it can have both a physical and a moral aspect to it. Somebody who's physically mature, somebody who's morally mature, somebody who's mature in their vocation. Um, and, it, and this, in many ways, would show people's philosophy about what human life was about. So Plato, for example, calls uh, the mature man one who has gained true view and philosophical knowledge. So that tells you what his view of the end goal of man is. Uh, it, it, it takes a little bit of a different uh, theme. In, in, in secular Greek, uh, teleos has its primary meaning in attaining of some sort of goal. Uh, but we, we see something in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the word's used a little bit differently there. In that, it can refer to something as unblemished, undivided, complete, whole. The stress here lies on being perfectly intact, and it refers uh, at times to an unblemished sacrifice that would be presented. Uh, it refers to a heart undivided in worship towards God. Uh, it re- refers uh, to a full deportation, to a whole offering made to God. Uh, so in Greek thinking, teleos kind of has this idea of totality and completeness and the achieving of a goal. And, and the two concepts are related. Um, so in, in the New Testament, it, there's nothing that's really mentioned that doesn't have kind of these ideas in mind. Totality, completeness, achieving of a goal, wholeness. Uh, we see it begin to be referred as and, and utilized in the New Testament 
talking about a Christian who is completely developed in the ethical sense of mind and character, having reached the goal of morality and religious growth, and is so complete, whole, deficient in nothing. Uh, This maturity may be generally regarded in some particular aspect and further developed by the context. Uh, So you can have somebody who's mature in thinking, mature in love, mature in knowledge and growth, mature in self-control, and in the full possession of all virtues, lacking nothing, as James 1.4 talks about. Uh, There's several passages in the New Testament, like Ephesians 4 and Hebrews 5, uh, where there's an infant mentioned in contrast to the mature believer. So one, the infant referring to the immature believer, and the mature believer being denoted by this term, teleos. Uh, it's used figuratively both in Ephesians 4.14 4, and here in Ephesians 3.15. A Christian whose mental capacity and spiritual character are fully developed. In Matthew 4.48, it refers to a Christian whose love, like God's, who, whose love is like God's, in that his affection is both mature, fully grown and developed, and whole. That is, it embraces both good and bad, righteous and unrighteous people, both those who love him and even those who do not love the believer. So there's kind of a a twofold sense here. There's there's a sense of maturity and, and wholeness, and there's a sense of achieving your goal. So Paul uses kind of the the twofold meaning of that word in in this passage, where initially he's talking about the perfection, the ultimate goal that we're pursuing. He says, that goal, I haven't achieved it yet. I haven't achieved that. But those of you who are mature, those of you who are considered to reach an, an elevated status, those of you who are mature believers, will take this view. Uh, in, in essence, he's making a really clever argument against some people that the church was dealing with. The church was dealing with people who said that they had already been perfected, that, that said they, they had kind of reached the pinnacle of what Christian life was, and they were claiming to be the mature, the perfect believers. <clears throat> Paul's kind of reversing the argument and saying, I know I haven't yet achieved perfection, the goal to which I'm striving, and that's what makes me mature. And anybody who's mature will have the view that you're not yet mature. So you you get how he's kind of using this word play against them. By the way, there still are people who who hold to the view that you can, in this point in our lives, reach a state where uh, you're, you're perfect. You're sinless. In fact, my dad used to have a neighbor who claimed that he hadn't sinned in two years. My dad also said that this neighbor threatened to kill another neighbor's dog if it didn't stop barking. <laughs> so so there, there, there are times what this view might have to do more with our blindness than an accurate description of Scripture. And, and one of the things we're reminded of is that the book of Philippians itself says that this work, this goal, isn't going to be completed until a particular day. Philippians tells us that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a time coming when the work will be completed, but it is not yet here. The process is not completed in this life. 
Paul realizes his responsibility to pursue greater personal experiential knowledge of Christ, intimacy with Christ, conformity to Christ and his holiness. By the way, that's what he's talking about obtaining, verse 2. Not that I've already obtained this. What's he talking about? Well, look back up at verse 10. That I may know him, Jesus Christ, the power of his resurrection. What's his goal? His goal is to know Christ more, to obtain more of him, to apprehend, to comprehend, to grow more in Christ Jesus. That is not something we can accomplish in this life. That is something you can spend your whole life pursuing and still just know an infinitesimal amount about. Still just barely be scratching the surface. I hope this is part of your desires. You know, as as Christians, one of our objectives is, is not only to be changing our thinking, but changing our desires. There are certain things that we desire that are wrong and that are bad for us. Anyone who has children has known this. You've had to take away certain things from your kids that they're about to stick in their mouth, that they're about to destroy. That, and what do they do? They get so upset at you. Why? Because they want it, not realizing that their desires are not for their own benefit. One of the things we do as we grow as, as believers is refine and mature our desires. There's nothing more important than developing this desire for Christ. Do whatever you can to grow in that desire, to grow in that longing for Him. Uh, One of the uh, commentaries I read said this, to know the incomprehensible greatness of Christ demands a lifetime of arduous study. A divine dissatisfaction is essential for spiritual progress. Saints, I hope you aren't comfortable in the degree to which you know and love your Lord and Savior. I I hope that's something that continues to draw you back to Scripture. That's one of the things we see in the Psalms, isn't it? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Longing for greater intimacy with Christ and a greater desire for Him. Paul points out, he says, I haven't attained this. I haven't already made perfect. But one thing I do, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. One of the things he's saying here is because Christ has made me his own, I strive to be complete. I strive to be mature. I strive to be holy. I strive to know him. Now, Notice the order of those. It's really important. He says, because Christ has made me his own, therefore I I press on, therefore I work, therefore I do these things. It's not the other way around. It's not saying, I'm striving for these things, I'm pressing on so that Christ will make me his own. Earlier in uh, Philippians, we we had the passage, uh, the the beautiful melding of the divine and human prerogatives in salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like that's a lot on us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That sounds like it's completely a work of God. But one of the things we emphasize there is that it wasn't work for your salvation. 
wasn't work up your salvation. It wasn't work in your salvation. It was work out your salvation. What he has given to you, work out, be a faithful steward of. We mentioned that all three aspects of salvation, both the justification, the sanctification, and the glorification are a work of God. And, and Philippians emphasize it. It says, not only can you, can you not work for the right thing without a work of God, you can't even want to work for the right thing without a work of God. So there are times when my prayer is, Lord, change my will. Because what I want isn't right. But I want to want what's right. And I know that requires a work of yours. So he's not, he's not working for this salvation. He's not pressing on so that Christ will make him his own. He's pressing on because Christ has made him his own. Remember, your origin and your destiny determines your trajectory. It's the difference between working out your salvation and working for your salvation. He says, um, by the way, this gives us great comfort, doesn't it? This gives us great assurance, doesn't it? That my salvation isn't up to me. It's not under my control. It's not dependent on how well I'm doing, how well I'm performing. It's not dependent on how hard I'm holding on to Christ, but rather the fact that Christ has laid hold of me. His grip is sure. There's no, there's no one else I would rather trust with my salvation, is there? He's laid hold of us. What a great joy that is. What a great comfort that is. That not our keeping hold of Christ, but His keeping hold of us is our safety. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul continues on. It says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Again, he hasn't reached his destination. He's trying to make this very, very clear to them. And, and hopefully, it also serves as a counter-argument to those who say they've, they've already obtained perfection. They've already obtained the goal of their salvation. One thing I think about is, if, if Paul's saying he hasn't made it, if Paul's saying he hasn't ascertained it, uh, I don't know about you, but that makes me pretty sure I haven't made it yet either. I, I haven't yet attained. If, if Paul's saying, hey, I'm still striving, I'm still pursuing, I haven't gained full knowledge of Christ, but I'm pressing onwards for, towards it, that makes me think, I probably haven't made it there. I, I've probably got a way to go. But one thing I do, here he's... he's, he's focusing everything. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We see that Paul has a singular focus. One thing I do. We see that he has a, a discontentment. He does not care about how far he, he has come in the past. He doesn't care what occurred in the past. He may also be referencing his Jewish credentials. Again, he might be saying, I, I don't care about how circumcised I was, how well I followed the law, how good of a Pharisee I was. I put all that behind me. That, that's in the past. What I'm now pursuing is Christ and knowledge of him. 
and I won't be satisfied to the degree to which I've known Christ. By the way, we see, we see growth in the knowledge of Christ in our salvation too, don't we? We know Him when we are initially saved. We are growing in our knowledge of Him as we are being sanctified, yet we're not quite to the full knowledge of Him that we receive at His appearing. When we see Him face to face, when He's revealed more spectacularly, more fully, he presses onward to the prize, to the goal. What is the goal? What is the prize? The goal and the prize is full and complete knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's referring back to that earlier passage. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He counts all the other things as rubbish. Why? That I might be found in Christ. His goal is to know more of Christ, to grow in, in that knowledge. And, we, and when we talked about that knowledge, we said this isn't informational, but it's experiential. It, it, it's the term that's not used for an abstract or, or theoretical knowledge. But the, the term's used oftentimes of a husband knowing a wife. It's a deep, intimate knowledge. Now, that includes information. It's certainly not, not less than information. But it's much more than just information. This is the, the prize he is pursuing, that he might know Christ fully. Know him and have fellowship fully with him. When do we get it? We can apprehend little bits of it here. Through faith, through obedience, through a reliance upon God and his word. Through what he has revealed to us. We get a bigger dose of it when Christ returns. We get a bigger dose of it when we see Christ face to face. It says, it referenced this, by the way, in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who hopes, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Again, the end goal, changing how you live right now. Our goal is to see him. Our goal is to know him. Our goal is to comprehend him. There's a day coming where we get a fuller dose. Where we get the full revelation of Jesus Christ. He, as we've mentioned, exhorts those who are mature to think that in this way. Uh, he, he has a little line here that's, uh, that's interesting. He's, he's trusting God not only in the development of the, uh, or in the God being faithful in the pursuit of the Philippians' salvation. He's also competent in, in God working and reforming their theology. Now, he might be a little tongue-in-cheek saying, let those of us who are mature think this way, if in anything otherwise God will reveal that to you also. He might be talking about when Christ returns and says, hey, then they'll know. Then they'll know that this view is right. Or he may just have confidence that God is going to continue to improve and mature the Philippians until they come to a fuller faith. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. He says, I, I don't want you to backslide. I don't, I don't want you to get complacent. He says, I don't, I don't want you to think, well, Jesus Christ is coming back, and then once I receive that, 
you know, I'll have a fuller revelation. No need to really stress myself out or work too hard in pursuing that until that time. No, no, no. He says, I want you to hold fast to what you've attained. I want you to strive forward to gain more of Christ. Saints, I, I hope you never grow content or complacent in your pursuit of Christ. I, I hope you never say, well, I, th- I think I've got it. This is good enough for now. I'm going to rest. I'm going to take it easy. I'm tired of studying. tired of learning. I'm tired of loving. All these things are wearing me out. I hope you don't grow content in your relationship with the Lord. Never be satisfied by the degree to which you know Christ. And and beware of and, and... suspicious of anything that you rely or depend upon or that you enjoy more than coming to know Christ. There, there was a, a story I read about um, Chuck Swindoll when he was the provost of Dallas Theological, or the head of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he, he met a young man who, who was coming out of the seminary and had a conversation with him. And the young man said something to him to the effect of, you know, I, I really came to seminary with a great love of Christ, but as I'm leaving, I have a greater love for the Word of God. And he, he warned him and, and exhorted him. said, that's not a good thing. That, that, that's something you, you need to change. You need to repent. And the guy came back later a few years and, into ministry, said he was getting burned out, worn out, tore up, and said, I realized that I needed to change what I was doing because my love was so focused on the word of God, uh, on the scriptures rather than the one to whom the scriptures point. Saints, any, any good thing that becomes the greatest thing can be a very bad thing. I hope you grow in trying to gain Christ by any means necessary. That was part of Paul's objective. It's why we see that despite almost all his circumstances, he was always progressing in the faith. It's also one of the reasons that despite all his various circumstances, we always see that Christ or Paul has joy in his faith because his eyes are focused on Christ, not on his own circumstances. Pray that you see him more clearly and love him more dearly until he returns to claim what is his own. Amen.